Good morning. Um, I think we'll, we'll start by dismissing the elementary children to their classes, elementary school age children. There are a few of you here. I think we're getting less than a 50% loss of the congregation, which is unusual. Um, as you may know, I, I don't do this professionally, don't get paid for it. And uh, when people were asking me this week, what are your plans for the Labor Day weekend? Oh, I'm giving a sermon at church. You get some really funny looks. Um, but anyway, we're continuing in this series on Rooted. In this case, we're talking about Rooted in Generosity. And I want to open with the first scripture, which is from Acts 2, which you've also seen the last two weeks. And it, it goes like this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you've heard over the last couple of weeks, Kairos was founded almost 15 years ago by a group of young adults. This passage from Acts 2 set out what were known as the four rhythms of the community, the study of scripture, prayer, community fellowship, and extravagant generosity. And that was the term that was used, extravagant generosity. Over the last two weeks, Mary Beth and Miriam have spoken to us about community. Now, Charlotte and I have been attending Kairos since early 2008, and I've always been struck by that phrase, extravagant generosity. It's always been something that seemed to me both attractive and yet at the same time threatening. As you know, you can be, we can be generous with many things. Miriam talked last week about how we can be an encouraging community, which is being generous with time and attention. But the rhythm of extravagant generosity refers to verses 44 and 45 of that Acts 2 passage, which speak of material and financial generosity. So today I'd like to explore with you what I believe is the least popular of these four foundational rhythms, extravagant financial generosity. I don't think it's any surprise that we're looking at this on a holiday weekend with roughly, you know, 20 people here. Now, we all have a sense that we're supposed to be a generous people, but what does it mean to be generous? Webster's Dictionary defines generous as one, liberal in giving, two, marked by an abundance or ample proportions, and three, characterized by a noble or kindly spirit. Surprisingly, the word generous comes from a Latin word that means of noble birth. Until the 17th century, to say that someone was generous was simply to say that they were of noble birth. It gradually came to mean traits of character that belonged, whether actually or theoretically, to those of noble birth, gallantry, courage, richness, fairness, and it also picked up a secondary meaning of fertile or abundant. By the 19th century, Generosity had acquired the modern meaning of open-handedness and liberality in the giving of money and possessions to others. 
Over time, of course, we've also applied the word to other things besides possessions and money. Here's what's interesting about this word history. However faintly, this etymology informs the popular understanding of generosity today. It's something that isn't normal, that isn't a normal trait of ordinary or all people. Unlike telling the truth or not stealing, generosity is more of an ideal, a higher standard towards which one aspires, something expected to be practiced by those of greater goodness or maybe greater wealth. What I've just described is how I think the world understands generosity, not how scripture understands it. But we are of the world, and so it's worth at least considering whether this common understanding affects our view of generosity. So how does the Bible define generosity? That's an interesting question, since in one sense, scripture says we can't be generous, cannot be generous. That's because everything in creation belongs to its creator, God. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. This is probably the biggest difference between our view of stuff and the Bible's. We think that things belong to us, our accomplishments, our bank accounts, even our children. But the biblical view is that whatever we have is on loan to us from God. Our possessions are all blessings from the Creator and we are just stewards. As we will see, that's probably the hardest thing for us to accept. Well, apparently it was also hard for the ancient Israelites to accept. In the wilderness journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, the Israelites were forced to recognize that it was God's provision that enabled them to survive. They were fed daily with a miraculous serving of manna, or bread. As Moses reminds the Israelites, he, God, humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, with which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. By the way, if that last phrase sounds familiar, it's what Jesus said when the devil challenged him to turn stone into bread. Later, when settled in the Promised Land, a land overflowing with milk and honey, Israel had to remind itself that God was the giver of all things. Moses tells the Israelites, do not say to yourself, my power and the, mighty, and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, so that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your ancestors as he is doing today. In part, God reminded Israel of the source of its wealth by requiring that its people give a tithe, a tithe meaning 10% of income or production from their fields. This tithe was used to support the Levites, the priestly assistants, and the poor. Set apart a tithe of all the yield of your seed that is brought in yearly from the field, it says in Deuteronomy. The tithe was required, a command from God. It was the minimum. In addition to tithes, Israelites also gave so-called free will offerings for the building of the sanctuary and alms for the care of the poor. God promised to bless Israel for its obedience to this command to tithe. In Proverbs it says, honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Later, the prophet Malachi says that God even challenges Israel to test him on this promise of abundance and blessings. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse 
so that there may be food in my house, and thus put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. And just in case you're wondering, Jesus didn't abolish the tithe. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier manners of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. Notice how the Pharisees, being super observant of one part of the law, are tithing even tiny spices, mint, dill, cumin. But while Jesus chides them for having ignored more important manners, he also says that they should still observe the command to tithe. Many people today find the idea of tithing challenging. You may be one of those people. I get that. But here's the problem. It's nothing compared to what Jesus asks. Let's look at some of what Jesus says about money giving and generosity. It should be a series of things. And he said to them, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. For no one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth or mammon. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Those, another time, uh, those who try to make their life secure will lose it, but those who lose their life will keep it. He looked, and then a passage from Luke, he looked up and saw rich people putting their gifts into the treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in all <clears throat> she had to live on. And finally, we have the story of the rich young ruler who seeks eternal life and tells Jesus he has kept all the commandments. Jesus responds by saying, there's still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when he heard this, the young man became sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's enough of that. It's clear from these scriptures that Jesus thought that our possessions were dangerous to our spiritual health. He warns against focusing on material concerns rather than God's kingdom. He warns against greed. He flatly states that we cannot serve wealth and God, that we have to choose. He, commands the, he commends the poor widow who gave all she had. I don't know about you, but I think I'd rather go back to tithing. It seems that Jesus is asking us to be ridiculously generous. Maybe it's not so surprising then that 20% of American Christians by objective standards, the wealthiest, wealthiest group of Christians who have ever lived give no money to any charity, and that most give only 2 to 3% of their income to all charities combined, including the church. I guess it seems better than getting too close to this extravagant giving thing. 
But why do we, living in the richest country in the world, have this reaction? Why do we struggle to be generous and resist practicing extravagant generosity? I can think of at least five reasons. You may have think of others. First, we live in a very materialistic culture which places a high value on wealth and status. Second, advertising works to make us dissatisfied with the way we are and what we have. We receive a constant stream of messages that if we only had this or that thing or experience, we would be happy. These messages can make us feel deprived. They help us convert our, need, our wants into our needs. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul advises Timothy to be content with what he has. There is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into this world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Well, it's really easy to read this warning about riches and think, oh, I'm not in love with money, really. I mean, I'm not like the old Disney cartoon character, Donald Duck's Uncle Scrooge, delighting in my pile of gold coins, you know, just turning them over. But here's the thing, money buys things, and it's those things we want. If we read the last two verses of this passage as, those who always want new things or experiences fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of possessions is a root of all kinds of evil. Then it's easier to hear it speaking to us. The third reason we find generosity difficult is that we value earned success. We see our achievements, our earnings, our wealth as ours because we earn them. Now, I want to be careful. I say this as someone who believes that hard work and discipline are important contributors to achieving successful outcomes, including financial ones. And I also believe that one's success can bless others. But it's important to remember, as Deuteronomy 8 reminds us, that we must never forget that it is God that gives us the ability to work and hard and with discipline. The fundamental reality is that we are recipients of God's blessing, of talents, as well as things, and stewards of his property. It's also hard to be generous in a culture that tells us this world is all there is. That's a message we get repeatedly. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's the end of everything. Finally, we have a hard time with generosity because we like what money appears to give us. Money gives us power to arrange the world to our liking. Why did Jesus say it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? Because the person who can largely control and shape their world doesn't really see a need for God. Money gives us options. We like that feeling of control. Money gives us security. We're afraid of what the future may bring. It's a sacrifice to let go of money. It feels, a little, it feels like a little death to part with it. And maybe that's the biggest reason we should. So how can we begin loosening the fear of not, the grip of this fear of not having enough? First, we can remind ourselves repeatedly that everything we have is a gift from God. 
we can become more aware of how the world pushes us to convert our wants to needs. We can reflect on the specific ways in which we have been blessed, consider how things outside our control have contributed to whatever we earn or have. We can attune ourselves to the needs of others in our lives. We don't need to look too far to find someone we know who needs help. We can open our hearts to needs in our city, country, and world. We can ask God to show us how our resources can help to alleviate physical and spiritual suffering in those areas. We can build margin into our financial lives. Just as we need margin in our schedules, we need it in our finances. We can spend less than we could and give the excess away. We can begin to see generosity. Finally, this is, I think, a significant one. We can begin to see generosity as a spiritual discipline. The early Kairos community used the word rhythm to describe the practices of time with scripture, prayer, fellowship, and extravagant generosity. Rhythm, practice, discipline. We aren't keen on discipline, though. Our culture encourages us to do things only if we feel like doing them. The problem is we don't initially feel like doing many things that are good for us. Take exercise. It's hard to get started, but once we develop the habit, it becomes something that's hard to give up because we experience the immediate rush of endorphins and longer term, the joy of health. It's the same way with developing habits of prayer, spending time with scripture, or making deliberate efforts to reach out to others in order to build community. It's even the same with generosity. We can begin to become more generous people with small steps that slowly free us from the fear of not having enough. Stretching ourselves to be more generous will feel uncomfortable, maybe even scary. But what's important is that we begin to let God's values replace the world's values in our lives. There's a great example of a community making the first steps in generosity in chapters 8 and 9 of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Here, Paul urges the relatively wealthy Corinthians to follow through on their intention to make a gift to relieve suffering in the Christian community of Jerusalem. To encourage the Corinthians, he cites the generous gift made by the much poorer churches of Macedonia. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia. For during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means and even beyond their means. He also reminds the Corinthians of the sacrifice of Christ for their sake. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Then after assuring the Corinthians that God will supply their needs in order that they may share even more with others and that their generosity will not only benefit others but show thanksgiving to God, Paul concludes, through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your partnership with them and with all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that, is, that he has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. In other words, by continuing to the, contributing to the offering for the Jerusalem church, the Corinthians demonstrate with their actions the gospel love that they have affirmed with their mouths. 
Notice that both their ability to give and their willingness to give come from God's grace, the same grace that enabled the Macedonian churches to give extravagantly, even beyond their means. So where does this leave us? There's one other saying about, by Jesus about money that I left out earlier. It frames the choice between God and mammon in a stark and immediate way. Luke 14, 33, Jesus says, So therefore none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. That stops you cold. I think I could fairly call this one of Jesus' hard sayings. Hard because it tells us to do something that seems impossible. Now I don't believe, actually, that you can't, can only be a follower of Jesus if you actually give away everything you own although there are certain people like Francis of Assisi who have done just that. But I do believe that Jesus is calling us to a radically new relationship with what we call our stuff, our clothes, furniture, cars, houses, bank and brokerage accounts. He's asking us to understand that it's not really ours. A few verses earlier, he provides the context for this saying when he tells the disciples, whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He's asking us to take up this cross, to practice sacrificial giving with regard to our possessions, to practice sacrificial love with regard to our possessions. He's asking us to really let go of them, to free our hearts from the dominating concerns about materials for security, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. If we let go of everything and see all of our resources as God's resources, then maybe we can begin to practice extravagant generosity, to think of it as a form of sacrificial love and experience the joy of God's reign in our lives. We really can't take it with us, but we can use it all to build his kingdom. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for this moment in your presence. We ask that you would grant us the grace to follow you more closely, to pick up our cross, and to love you and love others with sacrificial love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.